Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up on the show this morning, Mark Dignam on the intrusion of motor neuron disease to his life. Caroline DaCosta on becoming the first woman to become a professor of obstetrics and gynaecology in Australia. And she trained in Dublin first. And ahead of the listener event today, we'll be finding out more about anti-gravity yoga and sound bath meditation. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Oh, it was a good one this week. Finally, after two years of cancellations and lockdowns, we got to go on our weekend to Inishboffin, just off Galway, which is such a special place. We have been there before with some other families and the whole gang went again. The sun shone, we had bike rides around the island, swimming in the sea, sometimes more than once a day. Kids out in the rocks with nets, belly laughs over dinner. It was great. A lovely recharge of the batteries. I really think Ireland is hard to beat and it is the simple things that make the biggest impact. Now, today is the day of the listener event and I'm sorry if you applied and didn't get to come this time. There will be more. But in Dublin today, there are two groups meeting in Yoga for All in Dublin for a session of anti-gravity yoga with Suzanne Kenny and sound bath meditation with Emma West. And they both join me on the line now. Hello, ladies. Hello. I am so looking forward to this morning. Suzanne, I came out to your studio with my microphone three years ago when I just started out presenting this show. Claire was my producer then. She organised it. I went out blind. And from that first day, I was absolutely hooked. And up until COVID, I was quite a regular attendant in your studio. So I'm delighted to be getting back in there and introducing some listeners. Tell people a little bit about what anti-gravity yoga is. No problem. I can't believe that's three years already. Oh I my know. God, time flies. Well, COVID time is a different time. That that does, yes. that was a portal <laughs> of sorts. But yeah, exactly. three years ago. Yeah. Now I'm actually teaching this coming up to eleven years in Airside and Swords. It's um, a bit of a mad class if you haven't done it before. It's a mix of yoga, Pilates, calisthenics, aerial arts, conditioning. Like it's it's a bit of a mishmash, a bit of a hybrid class, but. One of the main things about it is that it's fun. So that's definitely um, what attracts a lot of people to it. It's not like your standard workout or yoga class. It's because it's that hybrid, you've got you've got a bit of everything in it. Um, we work with aerial hammocks. Each person in the class is going to have their own aerial hammock, which is suspended from the ceiling. And we use the hammock throughout the class. Some of the postures and things that we do or the yoga sequences will be familiar to people who have done regular yoga. But some are easier with the hammock and some are harder. And then we have just, again, some random things that we do, like backflips and front flips and uh, hanging upside down. And like everybody is able to do it, which is a bit of an eye-opener. When you first see the people doing some of the moves, you're like, oh, God, I could never do that. But it's definitely a class for anybody. Like everybody is successful when they go and try and do these different moves. They look really, really impressive, but definitely very accessible to the normal person. And I've never met a stronger woman in all of my life <laughs> going to gym classes, you name it. I don't know how much of it is down to horse riding and how much of it is down to your your yoga and, and your classes. But you do build up a great amount of strength in the class, don't you? Absolutely, because you're lifting your own body weight around. So like you wouldn't go to the gym and start lifting your own body weight. So it's very hard to replicate that except by doing it. 
So a lot of the moves, you have to use your arm strength to, to pull yourself around the place. But the good thing is there's usually options where you can modify a pose or a sequence if you don't have the strength yet. So the hammock can be used in different parts of your body to help you get into a move if, you do, if as I said, if you don't have the strength yet. And then, of course, I can make it harder if I want and be mean to people. <laughs> <laughs> and it is fun, like you said. I mean, it could be used as a swing. There's like moves where you wrap yourself up. If anyone's seen the singer Pink, I mean, she takes it to a whole new level. But there's parts of that that you can actually get involved in and you'll surprise yourself. There's a bit of feel the fear and do it anyway. And when you do achieve it, you feel amazing. And some very simple moves can make some incredible photos for Instagram. So that's also a major plus. Tell people the fact that you always give about the spine lengthening from from hanging upside down. Yes, it's one of the things that's so unique about anti-gravity yoga because one of the moves that we do is an inversion where you're hanging upside down in the hammock, but the hammock is holding you roughly around your hips or your pelvis and your arms and your head are not actually touching the floor. So it's quite different to normal inversions like a handstand or a headstand where you're kind of getting a bit compressed or a bit squished at your neck or your wrist or your hand. So you're only like literally centimetres off the ground, but your whole back is getting decompressed, it's getting stretched. And they've done lots of studies on this type of inversion therapy. And most people are on average a quarter of an inch taller after hanging upside down for a couple of minutes. And that quarter of an inch lengthening effect lasts for a few hours. And so beautiful, just, fresh blood to the face. You know, yeah, it's all it's good. Like it's all good. <laughs> and surprisingly, it feels really good. Suzanne, I don't know if I've, I've asked you, how did you come across this type of yoga? Like, again, it was it's a long time ago, maybe about 12 years ago, I found out that the guy, Christopher Harrison, who invented the technique, was coming to Ireland to kind of showcase it and to train some instructors in it. So it was just by fluke. I saw an ad somewhere. I think it was in like a night courses manual or something like that. It was just obviously meant to be. It was something that just caught my eye um, in, in a magazine. And I booked in because you have to be a yoga teacher or a Pilates teacher or I think a personal trainer at the time to be able to train in this technique. So I booked into the course and just fell in love with it and I've been obsessed ever since. I never get bored of it even though I'm teaching it six days a week for the last 11 years. It's one of my favourite things to teach. No, you are definitely doing what you were born to do. There's no doubt. Um, We will all float out of there a little bit later, um, a quarter of an inch taller, which is fantastic. That's Suzanne Kenny there from Yoga for All in Dublin, who you will find on Facebook. And also on the line, we have Emma West. And after the anti-gravity yoga class, people are going to climb into the hammock. So you can sort of have them like a U and gather them together or you can pull them out and make a beautiful hammock and we are all going to climb in there and be treated to a sound bath meditation by you, Emma. So what will be going on for those who don't know? Yeah, I suppose um, for anybody who hasn't experienced a sound bath or sound meditation before, um, and what better way to do it, you know, after the yoga wrapped up and cocooned in this hammock. Like, I'm just going to be so jealous watching everybody <laughs> as I go around <laughs> with the sound. Um, I might, you know, push somebody out. I don't really joking. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so sound healing or sound meditation is really a practice that we use sound and vibrations to really relax the mind and body. It can create shifts within the body, both on a physical and um, a mental level as well, really on all the bodies, on the physical um, emotional, spiritual and mental bodies. 
So, um, you know, it can work through slowing down the brainwave state, really bringing us into that um, rest and repair. Um, if anybody's been feeling stressed or anxious or anything, it can really work on slowing down the, the brainwaves and brings us into that kind of optimal state for self-healing. Um, as well, on the physical level, um, it's great for the, the sound vibrations that we're going to be receiving in the sound bath by using different instruments, I suppose, such as the Tibetan bowls. We're going to be using crystal bowls. I know everybody's a big fan of them. Um, some gongs and drums and rattles, all sorts of things. That can really um, stimulate the blood cells. It can really open up the blood supply to all the vital organs. So, yeah, and I always say to people as well, you don't need to worry about staying awake if you feel like you're going to drop off and fall asleep. That's absolutely perfect as well. Because the sound, you're not just listening to it through your ears, you're actually receiving it deep down into a cellular level. It doesn't matter if you fall asleep. I always say to people, I take snoring as a sign of a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, uh, anything goes really, I suppose, just come along. But, um, an open mind and an open heart, really. And just, you know, each sound bath, is exper- uh, each sound bath experience is totally unique to one if you've been to any before. So really just coming along with an open mind and an open heart and just enjoying the experience, really. And letting yourself surrender to the sounds as well. Giving yourself permission to relax, I suppose. And I think we, we have all heard now about the benefits of meditation and getting still and it's easier said than done. So having a sound to focus on can stop the mind wandering, which it still will, but then a new instrument starts and it's just bringing you back to the present moment, which I think is really, really helpful. How did you come about to be, be doing something like this, Emma? Yeah, so well, my story goes goes way back. I've always been into sound and into music. Like many people, you know, I would have used it when I was younger just as a way to relax and I didn't really realise what I was doing. I, you know, most people would put on a song or whatever to uplift your mood and things like that. And I think as I went into my own spiritual practice over the years, I found that I could use sound consciously. And I just, that was just me, you know, and I, I just fell in love with it. And I said, I have to really do this. So maybe two or three years ago, I trained as um, a sound healing practitioner. And I haven't looked back since. Absolutely love it. Yeah, really, really love it. And I see on your page you're also an ecstatic dance DJ. We might have to revisit that another time and combine the two <laughs> classes. I can see Suzanne Kenny getting involved in that in some way as well. But people can find out more about you, Emma, on Instagram at emmawest.ie. Ladies, I'm so grateful for you giving over your expertise today to some of our listeners and I will see you a little bit later on. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. There will be more events and particularly if you are a practitioner or somewhere outside of Dublin, around the country that you think we should come and visit, do get in touch. Suzanne Kenny and Emma West, thank you so much for coming on. The Irish Motor Neuron Disease Association are asking people to drink tea for MND throughout the month of June to raise much needed funds for those with the condition and their families. You'll hear and see ads that feature Mark Dignam and he joins me on the line now. Hello, Mark. Thank you for coming on. Hi, Claire. How are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. I I heard your voice as I was having my breakfast this morning. Have you heard the ad yourself? I haven't actually, no. A lot of people tell me they've heard it, but uh, not being a um, a Dublin commuter anymore, uh, I, I don't spend as much time on the radio or listening to the radio as I, I used to do. 
And we're going to get into your, your, your diagnosis and all of that in a moment. But how did you feel being approached to be a spokesperson for, for MND? Because that, that's taking things to a, a, a different platform and a different level. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I had I'd been approached by them last year. And to be honest, I wasn't really ready for it at the time. And um, obviously, something like this takes uh, takes quite a while to get your head around the implications. But, you know, once I've come through that and I, I've um, made my peace with it, if you like as such, then, uh, you know, I decided to, to, to step up when they came back to me this year and, and asked me to get involved really just a case of trying to trying to help out, I suppose, and trying to be a little bit of a voice for, for people who, well, some people have lost their voice from this disease, and, and obviously the association needs as much help as possible to, to help with their funding and the work that they do. And I know they have been a great support to you and your family in enabling you to get your 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 head around it, and, and I suppose there's an element of of, of paying it forward as it was. And MND has been getting a lot of coverage of late with Charlie Bird, of course, speaking of, of his diagnosis. But you had it enter your life in 2020, round about the time we were all coming to terms with lockdowns and COVID. And obviously you were taking that on too. I can't imagine what a challenge that must have been to, to have COVID and, and this diagnosis. Uh, yeah, it, it was difficult, all right, I suppose. There was obviously quite a long leading time to that official or formal diagnosis, and um, in some respects, the timing was bad because obviously it couldn't. You know, like everybody else in the country, your 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 whole world was the two kilometres or five kilometres, you know, around your house, and you know, going to the supermarket was highlight of the week. But so I, you know, I couldn't I couldn't meet friends or family and explain what had happened or what was happening to me. But at the same time, the silver lining of that was um, I didn't have to travel for work because I'd been back and forth to the UK quite a bit uh, for for business. So um, I was confined to home like everybody else, which was really exactly where I needed to be. And what were the first symptoms that led you to go to your GP? Was that your first port of call? Um, well, right back at the very beginning, it started with a limp, and you'll hear that in the radio adverts. Um, it really started something very simply where um, I'd always suffered from fallen arches in my feet, and I thought, you know, was on a particular family family getaway in um, in Germany, and we were walking around the streets a lot, and I thought, well, this is, you know, I just kind of overstressed my feet maybe or, or something, but it started very innocently like that and um, it took a long time for me to to try and track it down and I spent a lot of time um, thinking, I think it was something innocuous like, you know, foot or an ankle injury or, or leg injury, but um, so I went, I actually went to a physio first um, um, and I guess she was, she was, she was the right person, I suppose, in in hindsight. But she scared me at the time because she knew something was amiss with, you know, the way my muscles in my leg was or were responding or or not responding rather. And what did you know of motor neuron disease at that point? Not a great deal. I'd heard about it, and um, 
I knew it. I knew it was a big one. Um, uh, yeah, and at the time when I was you know, going to the physio and, and still working, still traveling to the UK, I um, I tried to avoid googling too many symptoms because you know you put you put symptoms like this into Google, you get all kinds of everything, and you know you end up scaring yourself. But um, I, I didn't. I didn't know it. A great deal about it other than it was uh, as I say a serious one. And are you able to explain to listeners what it is as it's been explained to you or as you've come to, to understand it? Yeah, so I suppose there's a couple of different ways to look at it and there's there's a lot of different symptoms and the symptoms are very individual for, for different people. Um, and so it, it, it's really it's um, uh, the form of MND that I have is is called sporadic, which basically means that it's a random genetic mutation where um, your nerve your nerves don't really control your muscles anymore, don't control them possibly. It's like it's kind of like um, like somebody going around switching off different lights in your house, and and. You don't really know why, and there's, you know, there's obviously, there's, I don't know, millions of nerve endings in your body, and it's like somebody going around switching off um, little individual parts of those nerves at different times, so you lose control of your muscles in, in different parts of your body. But in my case, it, it's very much um, related to the outer limbs, so the legs and arms. And with somebody like Barney Bird, obviously affected his, his voice very quickly. And for different people, it affects their voice and their swallow and, and, and how they can eat food and things like that. So it's, it's, there is quite a, a wide variety of different types of, of MND. That MND is more like a, it's an umbrella or, or kind of a family of, of different types of similar conditions. And as you said, it it's a it's a big one. That's big news to get. Did you have somebody with you when you were told that news? I I, I didn't actually know. Um, at the time, I had um, I'd gone to a consultant, and he had referred me on to uh, Professor Hardiman in Beaumont. And um, with with the restrictions of um, of COVID that had just started. Well, I thought it was best that I go along by myself rather than having the risk of exposing anybody else in the family to the COVID um, at the time. So no, I, I went along myself the first day. So it must have been tough to have to take a moment and then come home to your wife. I know you've you've two kids as well, and 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 to to try and in some way make sense of it before you then had to impart the news on. Well, in some respects, I mean. In, it's obviously a shock instantaneously and, you know, particularly in those early days, it, it, it's a big shock and your your mind starts to race ahead um, to all kinds of doom and gloom. Um, you know, despite the fact that very early on the professor told me, actually, I have a very slow uh, progression of the disease, so if it's possible to be lucky with MND, I'm somewhat more lucky than some of my sufferers in that, um, you know, things are changing slowly for me and they have changed slowly. And therefore I had time 
had time to plan a lot of things and to set out, you know, what I wanted to do and what I wanted to change in my life. But I remember um, driving around the M50 after that um, diagnosis and feeling more a sense of relief than anything, really, to be honest, that, um, you know, I'd actually given the thing a name now and that I knew what it was and that, you know, somebody, somebody could help me kind of plan plan out a course of action, really. So you know, it, was, it was those kind of conflicting emotions, really. Yeah, of course. And how has life changed then? Uh, initially, I went into um, I went into Beaumont with a limp and I came out actually on the same day walking slightly better because the, the senior physio had seen me that day and give me better kind of ankle supports and a walking stick. And I, you know, I actually came out walking slightly better. Um, but since then, it's been kind of a slow deterioration where I, um, I've had to transition from a walking stick to what's called a rollator, which is basically like a, a walking frame with, with four little wheels that, you know, you push in front of you. And that just helps me walk better and, and stabilize myself around the house. And outside of the house, then I've, I've now transitioned to a, a wheelchair, which is safer for me going outside to anywhere where I don't know. And it's, um, it means I, I get less tired. It's another feature common feature of the disease is that you're, you know, obviously you're, if you've less muscles, the muscles that you retain are doing more work. So you get more tired doing simple things like walking. So having the wheelchair means um, I save that energy when I'm out and about and, and I save it for, you know, getting out of the car or getting out of the chair into the car again and things like that. So. On a, on a daily basis, it, it really affects it affects everything, really, um, except maybe um, you know watching TV and using using my brain, which thankfully is uh, still functioning very well. And how do you keep your head together through all of it, Mark? Because on the one hand, you want to enjoy your life and, and the appreciation that you have for the, the simple things around you, your your family and whatever else it is. How do you stop yourself not slipping into a very understandable sad mode that this has happened and, and, and why you and how do you navigate between that? Well, when, when I went through the, the, the therapy um, uh, a really nice lady introduced me. She introduced me to really two very important concepts. One was meditation, which, you know, very simply gives you a space to, to kind of put your head in order twice a day. Um, it's a very simple routine that she introduced me to. So I meditate at least once a day, and I try to do it twice a day, but it's gives you a chance to clear your head and, and focus. And actually, a lot of that was, is obviously very, very useful for uh, a lot of people, not just, um, you know, not just people in my situation, but actually 
we spend no as a society we probably we we, we, well, we do spend too much time running around doing too many things that we don't really need to do and stressing about a lot of things and that's kind of you know that that could work for anybody and that could improve anybody's quality of life you know and the other the other thing she taught me is um to be grateful for what you have and be grateful for the life that you were saying and, and the enjoyment of life really just it's a very simple it's a very simple concept but again not something I guess it's linked to mindfulness and, and believe you me and before this diagnosis I'd be one of those kind of skeptical people who would would have kind of poo-pooed these kind of ideas of mindfulness but you know it's, it's critical for good functioning, I think. Yeah, uh, and they are such important tools for everybody and people struggle with it in everyday life. So with an added challenge, it, it, you know, it's great that you have them to lean on, but it's absolutely commendable that, that you can. And how do you feel when you look to the future? There's conflicting sides of it. Obviously, I know that things are not going to get better. Um, the nature of this disease is degenerative. It's, you know, I will run out of road, so to speak, on, on certain things, things that I can do um, this week. I may not be able to do next month or next year. Um, so, I mean, I suppose that's the kind of foreboding side of it. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm grateful, I suppose, that I have I have that bit of time to try and plan for that, and I can I can kind of detect and feel how things are changing. So I can, you know, I can plan for for changes the way the house is laid out, or or the way I do daily tasks. I can plan for that, and I've, I have to say, I've, you know, there's a hundred different ways this disease affects you every day, but there's also a hundred different ways you can change your routine. So. And my sound of the but basically, you know, there's, there's generally a way around a lot of things in daily life that you can you can do differently through different gadgets or or help from people who experienced this before, or from the MND nurses who are, are totally funded by the IMNDA. And of course, it takes up a huge amount of your your life now. But you're more than just MND. You're 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 still Mark. You're still a husband, a dad, a family member, a friend. I'm sure there's still room for all of that too. Yeah, very much so. And, and that's probably again referring to the to the meditation and the the the, the need for gratitude to express gratitude. That's really. That's where that comes in and that feeds into those parts of your life because um, actually since the diagnosis, I think I, I've, uh, I suppose I've rebalanced my work-life balance. I use that also, awful cliche that um, I focus more on things that make me happy and, and bring happiness to other people and trying to find a, a good balance really going forward and, and enjoying those aspects of life. Well, it's been an absolute honour to, to talk with you and thank you for allowing us into this life experience that you're having uh, because I think there's lessons for all of us in what you had to say about life and, and what's important. And 
you've also really spoken about the supports that are there that are enabling you to still be Mark. And a lot of that is down to the IMNDA and they are looking for support and to organise your very own drink tea for MND event all you have to do is visit imnda.ie and register your tea event. For more information, you can email fundraising at imnda.ie. If you can't host a tea event, you can just make a donation and you can visit their website, fundraise.imnda.ie and you'll find out more. Mark Dignam, it's been an absolute honour and I wish you all the very, very best. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Caroline da Costa spent five decades delivering babies and working as an obstetrician and gynaecologist. She's heralded as a woman who helped change the face of reproductive health care in Australia. But when she started out, she was told that women weren't trained in women's health. Thankfully, she didn't take no for an answer. And she's documented all her trials and tribulations in her book, The Women's Doc. And she joins me in studio now. Caroline, it's an absolute honour. You are a bit of a, a superhero, but you seem to be quite humble in all that you've achieved. Oh, absolutely. Thank you very much for inviting me onto the programme. Uh, it's a, it is a great honour. Yeah, so you to were told, here. no, that you weren't going to be trained in Sydney. And so you came to, to Dublin. Is that right? Uh, well, I had been in Dublin. I did medicine in Dublin in the, uh, the College of Surgeons. And then I went to work in Papua New Guinea, which is a large island north of Australia and quite uh, primitive at that time. And then I went to Sydney thinking that I could train as an obstetrician and gynaecologist. And then I was, I was told there, look, it's a, it's a male, a male uh, purview. You, we, we don't, it's a male area, you know. Why, why would you want to do that, you know? Uh, because I'm a woman? Uh, not, not enough of a reason. Uh, so I came back to Dublin where I was already known, uh, having been a student here. And I was taken on, first of all, in the Rotunda as a house officer. And then I did uh, two and a half wonderful years uh, in the Coombe Hospital where um, they were very, very supportive. There was never any suggestion that I couldn't be an obstetrician. But there was one point in your time here in Dublin where you were questioned for wearing trousers rather than a skirt. Ah, that was at the beginning of my career. The very first day when I went up to the College of Surgeons wearing what I thought was a very smart pants suit, which I bought in London. And I barely got a foot through the door when this very stern man pounced on me and said, no, no trousers in here, young woman. Go home and put on a decent skirt. Uh, which was quite mortifying uh, because I only had one decent skirt and I had to wear it every day that term. However, help was on the horizon because the miniskirt arrived in, in Dublin, in Ireland, after that Christmas and the women of surgeons embraced it wholeheartedly. And we'd come in and uh, this uh, gentleman was called Dr. Gallon. Dr. Gallon would try, where's your skirt, miss? And we would be fingering our thighs and saying, I'm wearing it, Dr. Gallon. So <laughs> fairly quickly, the wearing of trousers became acceptable for, for medical students, female. And you talk in detail in the book about lots of, of situations and, you know, you change people's names where there's a sensitive subject and you admit yourself, sometimes I don't remember the person's name. But how do you remember the situation in such great detail, the delivering of, of, so, many, of so many babies and the treatment of so many women? Oh, well, there's a huge number that I don't really remember. And this is difficult if I run into someone in the supermarket who says, oh, <laughs> look, and they're pointing to a 14-year-old and you're desperately trying to think where and when and what and, and how. Uh, but there are some cases, certainly the first one I described, which is one of the very first births I saw as a medical student and was a breech birth, beautifully assisted by a, a doctor I admired enormously. And I just thought, I, I want to do that. And I remember 
many details about that. Uh, but there are other other stories. Um, uh, stillbirths I've been involved with. Um, you remember those. They're they're uncommon enough. I'm glad to say, uh, and I'd like them to be even more uncommon. But you do you do remember them, and you think, oh, if I'd done something different, it might have been a better outcome. Uh, the some cesareans you remember because they were terrifying. Uh, some births you remember because you've really coached the woman, supported her through a difficult pregnancy and perhaps previous difficult pregnancies with poor outcomes and then she has a good outcome and there's just so much joy in the room when that when that happens so uh, we we remember do you have any kind of number on the amount of babies you've delivered or women that you've treated well it would be somewhere between 8 and 9000 i think but some of those would be births where i've just been present in the room in case i'm needed or i'm supervising a junior doctor or a medical student so it's many many thousands Wow. You mentioned there when you started out your training, there was no ultrasound, which is just begs belief how you would so know about breech birth or, you know, what was going on. How, how did you manage? Uh, well, we managed for hundreds of years. Oh, people before me. Uh, but yes, ultrasound is the most amazing development I've seen in obstetrics in my whole career. But it was a clinical, careful clinical examination and a fair amount of guesswork. Uh, and the the developing baby, the fetus, was just an, an inch or so away um, on the other side of the abdominal wall. But we knew very little about it uh, in the late 1960s when I began medicine and in the early 1970s when I began to do obstetrics. And I think any of us who've had babies, we all say that to ourselves. You know, women can give birth in the middle of the forest. We'll be absolutely fine. And I suppose there is some truth in it. But thank God for medical advancements. Well, you know, the women who gave birth in, in the forest and came out of it alive. Uh, but there will be some who, who didn't. Uh, and there's been a lot of, well, inverted commas, reproductive wastage over the years. Women have bled to death uh, and not been recorded as that having happened. Uh, maternal mortality, morbidity and perinatal maternal uh, uh, morbidity and mortality were very high, uh, particularly until the middle of the 19th century uh, and then even until the middle of the 20th century when there were antibiotics and blood transfusion and things like that uh, developed. So uh, it, is, it, it has meant that birth has become more medicalised and I think we have to guard against that. Uh, but um, yes, birth is a natural process, but it's not a perfect one. Nature can be very un, uh, unforgiving. You talk a lot in the book as well about caesarean section. And there seems to be a, a, an issue, I think, sometimes for women giving birth that there's a natural way to give birth and then there's a C-section. Should we just call be calling it all natural birth so that there isn't any stigma associated with either. Yes, I, I don't like the term normal birth because it's very restrictive. Uh, it's uh, a woman who between 37 and 42 weeks of pregnancy, having had a normal pregnancy, goes into labour, labour progresses, the baby is pushed out into the world without any intervention or assistance, the placenta is pushed out and mother and baby are in good condition. Now in my book, I've described all kinds of births, breech births, seizures, vacuum extractions, forceps, twins, uh, hemorrhages, damage to the pelvic floor and so on. I don't think those women should be called or regarded as abnormal. You, you can make plans and you can be well informed and you can think about what you would like, 
but it may turn out differently and it may turn out differently very suddenly. And so I think it's really important uh, if you are, uh, when, when you're pregnant and you're thinking about birth, that you keep an open mind. Tell us a little bit about one of the chapters in the book. It was a pivotal moment with a mum named Lola in North Queensland and it taught you a lot about taking time to respect a a woman's own decisions. Yes, so I worked uh, in Cairns uh, in far North Queensland for 25 years and we did a lot of outreach work. It's a very uh, large area of North Queensland and quite remote uh, and rural with a large uh, Aboriginal population. And we would go out, we would fly out and stay out Uh, in the country for several days and do clinics and so on. And this woman had been booked in to see me, but she didn't turn up uh, at the clinic. And I was concerned by the details uh, around her case. And I walked down to the river with the midwife uh, from the clinic who knew her. And she said, I think if she sees there's a woman doctor, she'll come up and uh, she'll see you. So we walked down and Lola was fishing and she stopped fishing and she walked away and she walked back into the community. And uh, the midwife I was with, and I, I said, she said, oh, it looks like she's not, going to, she's not going to cooperate. And we went back and uh, we were packing up in the clinic and then Lola appeared. She'd been wearing shorts before and she was wearing a dress and she was wreathed in smiles and she was all ready to have the examination. And she had wanted to go and have a shower before she came to see the woman doctor. Uh, And it made me realise I need to think about things from the point of view of the woman. Uh, I've been practising for 20 years before then, but I realised, look, I've got to really think around uh, how we we manage this. But she then, um, a a diagnosis was reached. She came to Cairns, she had the treatment and she's she's been fine. Um, So that that was a pivotal moment. Yeah, and just wait sometimes. Yes. Give the advice just and wait. then just just mm. wait. I think mm. it's a, a really good lesson. Mm. And you are a mum of seven yourself. I mean, you gave birth here in Dublin as a single mum. You literally know motherhood from all different angles and walks of life. Uh, yes, I do. Uh, I've, I've been very fortunate to have wonderful children uh, who have been supportive, who learned very quickly Uh, what it was like to have an obstetrician as a mother. Uh, Two of my children have done medicine. Neither of them have shown the slightest interest in being obstetricians, uh, but I think they're both good doctors. And um, it's it's been a great joy to have had children myself. How did you manage it with studying as a single mum here in Dublin 50 years ago? How did you juggle the, the childcare and the study? Uh, well, I think I was very naive. I didn't know that anything could go wrong. Uh, I was 20 years old uh, and I found a very wonderful woman in uh, Dublin, a widowed woman, a nurse who ran a small creche and my son went there. So I had to get him ready in the morning, take him there and leave him and then collect him in the evening. I benefited from the fact that I, my family were in Australia. Uh, I didn't have an Irish family who would be concerned about... A, single motherhood possibly, although certainly my Australian family were very supportive. Uh, And I was brought up in a a non-religious household. So I didn't have the feeling that uh, this was sinful. Uh, So I managed to not have that baggage and I just had to deal with how am I going to get through medical school and support this child uh, for the next few years. And it was a bit of a struggle, but uh, one of the things that Irish students did then was to get charter flights to the States. 
uh, in the summer and work for three months and save as much as you possibly could. So I did that and I took him took him with me uh, two years running and I worked in London and I did, I indexed medical textbooks and things uh, to make money during the term time. And I think a lot of the time, especially now, you know, we, we back off asking women, how do you juggle it all? Because men aren't asked the same. But I think... The answer is not to stop asking women, it's to start asking men, because I think it is commendable to manage the two. And at times it is a struggle and a juggle, but to to say it can be done is certainly commendable, as I say. You took part in an interview, um, Illegitimacy and the Church, back in 1971. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I did that because I realised that I was in a small minority of women in Ireland at the time who were able to... Uh, to keep the child and not uh, be stick. Well, I was. I had some um, difficult moments and I was criticised, but uh, I was not really too worried uh, about that. And so I was asked to appear in that uh, magazine and talk about uh, the um, what was involved in being a at that time called an unmarried mother. Uh, and I subsequently formed a small group of women who were inverted commas. Un- unmarried mothers. Uh, and of course, now um, it's perfectly acceptable in Ireland uh, to not be married, uh, to choose to have children uh, and not be married to their father, but to be sharing the upbringing with that person, uh, their father or their, their the, the mother's partner, uh, now that there is also same-sex marriage here, which of course, in 1968, when my son was born, nobody would have known what you're talking about if you if you used the term same-sex marriage. Yeah, or used even the term partner. You partner, know. yes. There were no partners. There were just husbands, yes. And when you look back to the mother and baby homes, there was just no mention that there was a father. And of course, there was uh, a father somewhere. Yes, but it that's was just, right. But he got off scot-free. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And the women just and carried that burden. Exactly. Yes. Um, but this was one of the things you, you spoke out about. And you also began to speak out about reproductive rights. When did that become something that you wanted to to, to campaign in many ways for? Uh, Well, the first thing I was concerned about was contraception. And I was uh, a a member of the fairly loose group of women's liberation movement members uh, in the very late 60s and 1970, 1971. And I was actually on the contraceptive train that uh, went to, we went to Belfast and we bought condoms and we we thought we would be able to get the pill, but we couldn't, so we got aspirin. Um, Nell McCafferty and Mary Kenny were particularly leaders of those. We were, there were 47 of us. Uh, and we came back to Dublin, May of 1971, to what was then Amiens Street Station, Conley Station. Uh, and we had uh, alerted the media to the fact, well, it wasn't even called the media, the press at that time, uh, to the fact that we were going to do this and we were going to illegally and no doubt sinfully bring these contraceptives into the country. Uh, and we were quite nervous as we were coming back towards Dublin. But when we got there, the customs officers were a lot more nervous and they were looking around shiftily. They didn't, some of them didn't know what a condom looked like. Uh, so um, it was actually quite funny. And we outside we could see there was a large group, mostly women, uh, as well as the press, but the women demonstrating and supporting us and saying, let them in, let them in. Uh, and none of us were actually ever charged with anything. And uh, I was also involved as a medical student in the early years of the Irish Family Planning Association, which uh, 
campaigned relentlessly and, and fearlessly to be able to provide contraceptive services for Irish Irish couples, Irish women and Irish Irish couples. Yeah. Uh, and so that was a big part of my learning experience uh, as a medical student and then as a registrar doctor at the Coombe. Once I was there, I was able to actually uh, practice in some of those clinics. And you spoke out about how Viagra was made widely available, whereas the abortion pill wasn't. So you've been fighting along the way for women's right to choose. And where do you think we are now? Do you think women have control and autonomy over their own bodies and their own health? Well, we've certainly got a lot more control than we had at the end of the 1960s. And the church has uh, fortunately um, been displaced from that role. The church had huge authority, uh, moral and, and legal, over women's bodies and what they could do with them. Uh, in the 1960s and 1970s. It's extraordinary looking back, and that has changed. There are um, undoubtedly uh, more progress is needed, uh, probably, uh, and then services need to to be provided in Australia as in Ireland uh, so that women actually do have access to, to the contraception, to the advice they need, and to abortion if they uh, make that choice for themselves. And it's it's not totally straightforward yet. Before I let you go, I would have to ask you something that blew my mind in the book, um, aside from the bigger issues like that. We spoke about there being no ultrasound, but there wasn't a pregnancy test kit. You couldn't pee on a stick as, as is done now. How was pregnancy determined? Ah, well, what you needed was a small animal. Uh, and in the case of my own pregnancy, it was a, a frog or a toad. Uh, and these animals were kept and uh, they were injected with the urine of the woman who might be pregnant in the morning uh, and changes would come about in their reproductive organs, which had to be looked at under a microscope. Uh, so this was quite complex. It took a while to uh, get the answer. So you had to ring in the afternoon to the receptionist uh, of your doctor to get the answer. And in Cairns, uh, we Cairns is in far north Queensland, uh, we have a lot of cane toads, horrible cane toads. Uh, and the pathologists in Cairns back in the 19, early 1960s realised that maybe these cane toads could be useful for these tests. And they were, and they got the children of Cairns to bring them in and paid sixpence for cane toad uh, and sent them all over Australia uh, to provide the basis for pregnancy testing in Australia. Now, of course, it's much more clinical and you can... Do it in the privacy of your bathroom, as you've indicated. I think the animal rights activists will be as happy as the women's livers that things have changed over time. But you have so many stories to tell and have achieved so much. I highly recommend the book. You're still teaching now and a a grandmother. I am. I've got four lovely grandchildren. Well, I, I, it, there's a superhero here in our uh, midst who has done incredible work. The book is called The Women's Doc. Caroline DaCosta, thank you so much for talking to me Thank you very much for having me. And Caroline DaCosta will be launching her book in Hodges and Figgis in Dublin on Tuesday. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aidan McKelvey, to Aoife Breen and Jojo Cordoza who was on sound. And thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna, Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.